Hi, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Tom De Vos, uh, and I'm happy to introduce you to uh, our board members of the committee today for our second podcast for Knowing Gamma Generations. Uh, so with me here today is uh, Svenja. Hi. And Francie. Hello. And we have another Tom present, Tom Lemmes, also from my hometown, Nasal Kiesigam. Hi, Tom. Hi. Okay, uh, so actually we have all our board members here today uh, from the Young Committee of Nangama of the IEN, uh, but maybe for the people who don't know us yet or don't know the Young Committee, uh, it's a good thing that we tell a bit about what we actually are and what we do, uh, and who better to tell us than our president, uh, Svenja, maybe you can help us out on this. Of course, um, to uh, to jog our minds and also um, to welcome everybody who's new to uh, the story of the Young Committee. Um, we are a group of uh, third and fourth generation descendants of uh, victims of Nazi persecution. And most of us with a connection to the history of the Neuengamme concentration camp and uh, close to Hamburg. and. Uh, we um, um, established this group in 2019 in May um, because um, several years uh, we had discussed um, uh, that uh, there's a unique perspective of third and fourth generation descendants and there are needs of uh, people with this um, connection to um, family members who were persecuted that we thought um, that under the umbrella of uh, the Amical International KZ Neuengamme, the international organization representing the national associations of survivors and uh, relatives of uh, um, the prisoners of the Neuengamme concentration camp, that um, we needed to have a group um, that represents our interests and also gives us a chance to network uh, internationally and um, also not just to network for the sake of networking but also to help people uh, from uh, third and fourth generation to um, explore their family history and also to find new ways to to share their family history and i mean this is also why we are here today to also talk about our own family histories and also to encourage others to share theirs. Yeah, thank you, Sonia. Indeed, that's true. Um, so yeah, as you see, um, the Young Committee, we all have our special uh, connection to the former Neuengamme concentration camp, which is located near Hamburg in Germany. Uh, maybe indeed, since we are all uh, third and fourth generation, uh, it might be nice for our audience to get to know us a bit better uh, and to maybe do a bit of deep dive on our personal connection with the former concentration camp. Uh, so maybe, uh, Francie, would you like to kick it off and tell us a bit more about maybe yourself and what your connection is to Neuengamme? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I, okay, I start with myself. I am the great-granddaughter of a persecuted social democrat who lived in Hamburg. I now live in Hamburg myself. I was born there, raised there, worked there, love it, best city. Um, so he was a social democrat and of course 
because of that, he got fired from his profession right after the Nazis took over in 1933. And he was then, uh, well, he had a lot of free time after that. So he got into resistance to fight for his freedom. Um, being a good anti-fascist, he was doing some, what do you call them again, these leaflet papers with anti-Nazi propaganda. He helped um, bringing them under the public in Hamburg and he got arrested for it in 1935 and was uh, charged with uh, preparation of high treason um, and got into prison and concentration camp-like prisons for four years. He was so lucky to be imprisoned very early because that time he still had a chance to get out after these four years. Um, so he was imprisoned in Hamburg in Fulsbüttel and after that got transferred to Aschendorfer Moor, which is in the north of Germany as well, which was one of the early concentration camps. And he survived. He was very lucky to survive. I do not know how he did it. I never met him. I could never ask him. Um, but after he got free, of course, the persecution didn't stop. He was still a social democrat. And uh, in the war, he needed to go to the war as well as, well as a soldier. Although uh, the Nazis originally stated that people who were in concentration camps were not allowed to join the army, they later in um, the later phase of the war uh, forced them to join, of course. Uh, they needed cannon fodder. And so he was a forced soldier. He worked as a medic there, and I think that saved his life as well. Um, yeah, he survived. I think 2,000 people were sent from Hamburg to the war by force, and um, only 408 of them returned in 1948. He was one of them. So this is his story, and my story is that when I was younger and needed some school internship, um, I thought I'd go to a library. And my aunt is a li librarian. Is that the right word? I hope so. Um, and she works at Neuengamme Concentration Camp Memorial. What a coincidence. <laughs> she took me in. She said, well, maybe you want to go to the archive. And that's where I now still work. <laughs> that's my connection to Neuengamme. I know my uh, uh, my great-grandfather, he was not in Neuengamme, but he was in Hamburg, he was persecuted, and I work in Neuengamme, I love Neuengamme, it's a big part of my life, so that's my connection to it. And that's okay. how I all met you. <laughs> hey, thank you, uh, Francie, indeed, for a very interesting story. So it's uh, it's nice to know that we have an archivist from uh, the Neuengamme archive in, uh, in our group, because that's always very handy if you want to do some uh, very interesting research, uh, and so yeah. you'll be our expert archivist from now on. Uh, so then, uh, welcome Looking to the podcast. To it. <laughs> okay, and then with us we also have Tom uh, from Meselkiesingen, Belgium. Uh, feel free to tell your story as well about your connection, Tom. Yeah. So uh, my background is a bit different. 
Um, my great-grandfather was actually a simple farmer from a very small village in Skizium. And um, yeah, the other Tom, his grand great-grandfather was also from there. Apparently they were the, neighbors. Uh... Uh, yeah, they were neighbors indeed. So uh, my great grandfather uh, Everard, he was the neighbor of your great grandfather, and they used to live in the same village. Also, uh, he was a farmer too. Uh, yeah, well, mostly everybody at the time was a farmer, so that's quite easy. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he was arrested as basically a part of um, yeah uh, an act of vengeance because uh, yeah a collaborator who worked with the Germans in Belgium he was shot, and then as sort of vengeance for this murder, he and many other farmers and just basically random people from the village were arrested and then brought to the Neuengamme concentration camp. This happened close to the end of the war, basically yeah, the last few minutes you could almost say before the liberation of Belgium. And yeah, he sadly didn't survive for very long in the camp. Uh, he was one of the first to pass away from Mainzel Kiesingham and um, yeah, so for me, it was always a bit of a yeah strange thing because we didn't really know what happened. We know they were taken away. And so for most of my childhood, that was kind of the story. He was taken away to where we don't yeah, kind of know, but we don't really know what happened. And then later on, gradually, the story sort of yeah came up and then we know, OK, this is really what happened. Um, yeah, me personally, I went in a bit of a different direction. Um, so I studied theoretical physics, so not history or archivist related at all. Um, and now I currently work as a uh, mathematical consultant in a company in the Netherlands. So uh, yeah, I've moved around a little bit. Uh, currently I'm settled in Wol, Belgium, but uh, yeah, I've lived in quite a few places by now. Yeah, our uh, world adventure indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, indeed, uh, the story of uh, my personal connection is very much related to yours, uh, of course, Tom, uh, because uh, my great-grandfather was one of the people who was arrested on the 11th of August in 1944, was uh, about three weeks before the liberation of Flanders. Um, and he was uh, actually also the, the first one um, that passed away in Neuengamme. Uh, and the peculiar thing is that uh, your great-grandfather was the second one, if I yeah. did my research correctly. So. That is um, correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's very strange how closely related their stories are. Uh, but then again, it was more than 100 villagers were arrested in, inside our town. Uh, and in the end, only uh, from the 72 people that got in the Noingama camp, uh, only eight of them were able to return. So it's uh, a tragic conversation or, or story from our village, of course, in, in Flanders, but there are so many others. Uh, but that's a bit indeed uh, also my personal connection. Um, for me professionally, I'm uh, a programmer. I have my own IT company here in Belgium, uh, but also I'm uh, involved in the museum that handles about the story, uh, Museum 44 in our village, um, where uh, I'm happy to be one of the board members um, and yeah, where we still work about remembrance education. So uh, the story really sticks from my side uh, as well. and. Uh, I'm happy to be in the community as well on that. So, um, but frankly, I'm uh, before your story and Tom as well. But I'm, I would love to hear the story about Svenja too. Yes, thank you, and thank you um, also to the three of you for telling again new details I I didn't know. I mean, every time we talk, there's something um, I learn. Uh, 
that I hadn't known about before. Um, yes, um, so my, um, I also have a, a professional and a family connection to uh, Neuengamme. Um, my, um, my maternal grandparents um, were um, persecuted for um, anti-Semitic reasons. They were Jews from um, Hungary. My, um, my grandmother well, was from a village that today is in Slovakia. Um, my grandfather uh, was from uh, Budapest and uh, they were deported in um, 1944. Both um, survived Auschwitz and um, were taken to satellite camps of uh, the Neuengamme camp. And uh, my uh, grandfather was taken to Hanover and my grandmother to um, Bremen. And uh, then um, I, I only knew my grandmother. I never met my grandfather. So there are many stories I learned about him from my mom and my aunt. And um, he, um, he escaped in the last days of um, the Camp Alem in Hanover and uh, went to the city center of Hanover and uh, which was liberated in April 1945 and my grandmother was liberated in Bergen-Belsen and uh, they met in the Bergen-Belsen um, camp um, because um, it turned into a DP camp after liberation and um, she obviously was Pardon? What is a DP camp? A displaced persons camp. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, cool. Yes, um, and um, that's actually also part of my family history that my family for a long time remained um, displaced persons. Um, and um, my grandparents met in the DP camp and there was apparently um, a family connection before, I mean, my grandparents had not met before, but my grandfather from Budapest uh, knew from Budapest a brother of my grandmother. And uh, that was kind of a starting point of a conversation. And he was actually in search of his of his wife and his daughters because he had been uh, already married, had two daughters, um, but he had to find out that they had been murdered and um, eventually my uh, my grandparents decided they wanted to start a family and move to Hanover. So they never returned um, to their home countries, but um, decided to start a new life. And my grandfather um, was involved in founding the so-called KZ-Ausschuss, which was a self-help organization in Hanover for um, uh, survivors. And he was very involved in that. And eventually he also, because he had been um, trained as a, he had studied law in Hungary, he eventually started working for a government agency um, involved in, um, now I'm, Wiedergutmachung, is it retribution? For, uh, so he was involved in this. So he had a lot of connections to survivors um etc and um so uh, he was also involved in helping form the bang belson memorial 
So I think it runs in the family to be involved in commemoration. And um, so then in uh, when I finished my bachelor's degree, um, I didn't want to continue right away with my master's and I decided I needed to do some internships. And my first choice um, was um, to do an internship at the Neuengamme Memorial. And that was the starting point also of my professional connection, because after my internship, I started working as a guide for student groups and eventually I got involved in all kind of seminars, workshops for descendants of, um, of victims, but also for descendants of um, persecutors. And um, then I just my roles continued and I still work there currently responsible for all things related to using media in the education setting. Wow, so, so cool. I love how we both started this internship yeah. <laughs> and then returned. Yeah, I still remember Francie you doing uh, the internship in Mesopotamia actually a few years ago, right? Was it an internship or yeah, did you just was... help out at your big commemoration <laughs> event? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a yeah, calling an exchange instead of a, an internship. Cool. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. wonderful. But I find it so peculiar that uh, hearing our personal stories, we all uh, mostly inherited our commemorative work from somebody else in our family. Uh, because, Francie, I think for you it was your aunt, right? She worked at Neuengamme already? Yes, she still works there and she is basically the one telling me the story of my great-grandfather. I mean, from, from my parents' side, from my mother, I just knew, I mean, when I started my internship in uh, 2010, I just knew that, okay, Neuengamme was a place where people were imprisoned and it was very bad and your great-grandfather was in a similar place. And that was like all I knew, all I really yeah. knew until then I tried to dig deeper and my aunt was a very uh, much help there. And for, for Svenja, it wasn't her uh, grandfather, grandmother. Uh, yeah. How was it for, for you, Tom? Yeah, for me, it was my grandfather also. So yeah, my parents yeah, weren't really involved. And also, yeah, my grandfather telling stories about, yeah, things that happened during the war. And then, yeah, later on, his uh, engagement with the local uh, organization in the Inskizium. Yeah, it was the same for me, too. Uh, for me, it actually started out with my, uh, my grandmother and her brother. Uh, they, who, who were the founders of the original uh, museum uh, and yeah we heard the story me I heard the stories as a small child from uh, 11 12 years old and that's how uh, how it happened from my side so it's it's kind of peculiar uh, that even though we are uh, located so on different backgrounds the the big story remains the same and that, that brings me the question that um, since uh, since we see that we're now all third and, and fourth generation, um, we already told that we we get it from our aunts or grandparents or stuff. That um, it happens. The, the commemorative working is different, I think, between these different uh, generations. Um, but how does it differ in in your guys' opinion? Uh, how do we do things differently than our grandparents or uh, our uh, Parents or aunts, yeah. I think that 
yeah, for us it's different because we sort of happen to be in a sort of yeah interesting place and time basically. Because yeah, we're not one of the people who actually lived through it. We didn't immediately see the camps or live through the camps or see someone who came back from the camps directly. Um, so this gives a bit of distance you know, for the, the, the direct victims, like first generation, second generation. Then it's, yeah, it's really, it, yeah, what you lived through and yeah, how they sort of now, yeah, handle it, how they deal with it. Yeah, I see it as well, yeah, because I've, uh, for the museum in the Focusium, we've, doing, we've been doing a lot of interviews with uh, the, what we call the first generation war orphans, uh, actually. Uh, it's already second generation, probably. Um, yeah. We've been doing a lot of interviews, like the generation of our grandparents, um, and you see that for them, it's, it's uh, a lot is uh, very trauma-based, because they... Um, they had their whole lives to live with the idea that their father was taken away. Um, so that's uh, something that still becomes very emotional when they have to talk about it almost 75 years or almost 80 years after it happened. Um, that's something that I really see happening again. And uh, I, I agree that uh, the distance is makes you see things from a different angle. Uh, for instance, when, when we talk about the perpetrators in the village, they still mm -hmm. get very emotional where uh, I see that now we from the fourth generation are trying to get in touch with also descendants from the perpetrator side and to hear their stories and what happened with them. And um, that's something that would have been really not done, uh, a few, yeah, I think, even a few years ago. Uh, is, it this, is it the same in, uh, in Hamburg for you, for you guys? I think yes. I think what what's basically is that we as a generation do not have this pain inside of us. We can, if, if we like what we do now, we talk and we talk very uh, scientific and clear about it. And it's, it does not tear up old rounds when you two say that your relatives died. It's a matter of fact and you can speak about it without getting too emotional. It does not mean that you did not care, of course, but it's just that you are able to speak through it without that um, very emotional-based trauma. And I think that's the same even in Hamburg. Maybe Svenja can agree. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's even, let us just consider that it, it, it wasn't always um, um, common to say people were traumatized. I mean, I, I think even um, from the perspective of acknowledging the psychological effects, so much has changed. I mean, uh, even for the survivors, um, nobody came and offered them psychological um, help, support, and uh, no, nobody helped uh, their children or helped the children of um, the people who, who, were, who were killed to deal with it, to even find find a voice. I mean, uh, when we also look at um, at uh, literature, so much uh, of uh, people sharing their stories uh, actually came out so much later. Many, many documentaries, uh, fictionalized movies came out so much later. I mean, we grew up, I think, in a time when it was much more common that this period was talked about. It was not so... Uh, um, I think, uh, at least from what I 
I know from what my um, mother and my aunt uh, told me, I mean, yes, you went to, for example, the Bergen-Belsen Memorial on those special occasions, and they had people come to their house who also were survivors, but it wasn't like a, 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 a thing openly addressed. And uh, whereas I think it's much easier now for us also to 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 talk to um, our families um, about about this. And I mean, you, you see, and there are so many moments where you can actually talk about it. You see the Stolpersteine, the stumbling mm -hmm. stones. I mean, even even with my small son, I uh, uh, these are starting points for conversations uh, about mm -hmm. this time period. So uh, I, I think uh, it's not just about us having a more distant connection to those who were persecuted, but it's also time has changed so much. True, yeah. That's something that uh, we see here in, in Belgium as well, that um, mm -hmm. people who have been silent for 70 years, now finally they start telling their story and they're happy to be able to tell their story. And um, when we ask them, why do, you, why do they tell it now? That's like, well, at first we didn't want to talk about it because it was too hard. But now we really want to make sure that people don't forget because probably we're not going to stick around for much longer. And um, and you see people who get now that because we do interviews like every week almost now with, with war orphans, uh, you see that it gives them even a bit of closure that they were able to tell their story that it is written down. Um, we see that people are now actually getting that bit of closure that they were always been looking for for more than 70 years. That is also, I think, for us, a very big motivator to continue what we're doing. Just maybe an archive example, because recently, uh, two days ago, I uh, stumbled across a document from, um, going back, Neun Gamme was, after the war, um, a, um, an internment camp from the British, and directly after that became a prison from the city of Hamburg. And I found a letter from the prison site uh, in 1941, where the French begged for coming to do a pilgrimage. And the, um, the prison um, wrote a letter to the city of Hamburg to um, explain that the time needs to close, that you need to forget what have happened to not tear up uh, old wounds. Um, and to make this all pass and forget and not talk about it anymore. They even declared that having a modern prison on a former concentration camp is a good memorial. Wow. Um, and I was just reading it and thinking, like, okay, I'm getting sick from it. It's so much yeah. apart from what we think now, but that was, I think that was common, um, common thoughts at that time, only six years after the war to just don't talk about it anymore because it's traumatic and uh, just be silent. I think uh, definitely there are a lot of uh, other examples from that time period of people yeah. just making making it silent, people trying to forget. Uh, even in, in Belgium, actually, the, the stories, they only start to rise 40 years after the, the stuff happened. Uh, it was only in the 80s that people really started talking about it. And that's also the time that we grew up. So we... Um, I think that's the uh, 
yeah, indeed, uh, something that we really see shifting. Um, and I think it's for the better, uh, because you can, as you can see now, all these places that were places of cruelty in in the Second World War, they are now, uh, if you visit Mangaman, it's a very serene uh, place that, that is really bringing honor to the people who, who are there, in my personal opinion. Uh, and you see that on uh, so many different spots in uh, in Germany, but also in uh, other places in Europe as well. Uh, and it, but it's only an effort of the last few years, I think. Yeah. In the last 20, uh, 20 years, you've seen so much um, difference in yeah. new memorials, new museums. Uh, I think even last year, a new museum popped up in, in Kerdelegen, right? Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's good effort and it's uh, it keeps on happening. Yeah, uh, but then again, I, I find it so peculiar uh, because we are now people from from Belgium and Germany. Um, are we alone in this? Is this peculiar for us, uh, or are there others? Is there uh, do we see it bigger uh, happening as well? I I think we actually do see. That it's a it's um, it's a bigger thing because uh, we we really have a lot of people from different countries in uh, in our network and um, I'm I'm in touch with a lot of people from other countries from Western Europe Eastern Europe uh, Southern Europe um, uh, Southeast Europe and and it's it's really um, I find it's appropriate to call us like a, a pan-European um, network, and uh, because uh, um, I think uh, our our histories, our family histories, bring us um, uh, together. And I think there are many uh, when we when we talk, when we email, there are many things where I think it's easy to kind of nod and uh, in agreement, but there are also very um the experiences that are very much um tied to um, to the countries where these people grew up in because uh, even though we really do have a um that pan european culture of remembrance i mean you see it when you come to the commemorative events at the nangama memorial how people from many different uh, countries attending or um, when you had your inauguration of the museum in Minsel Kieskim. I mean, there were people from so many countries um, in attendance and it, it brings people together and you have this uh, mixture of languages and etc. But there are also things that I think are very unique in the experiences of, I mean, uh, the experiences of people in, in in some Western European countries are very different from uh, Eastern European uh, experiences or even uh, countries where some countries have um, a very big focus on the resistance and are slower maybe to to explore that there was collaboration and some countries are much more advanced uh, in regard to uh, acknowledging this and that of course uh, that's I mean that um, national narrative about that time period varies or we have I mean the experience of people living 
having grown up in countries that haven't been democracies for so long. I mean, be it uh, for Southern Europe, Spain, or uh, even um, Eastern European countries. And we have the West Balkans, um, who had the war in the 90s, and uh, where a lot of the conflicts basically hanging over from World War II kind of came up again. So it's um, we have all a common denominator, but uh, we also all bring very unique perspectives. Yeah, I uh, I like the term uh, of the, the pan-European network thingy because I feel it as well. Uh, you have so many different people from different backgrounds coming together, commemorating together, and everybody has their own story. But uh, I see it too that uh, it's not only Germany and Belgium. Uh, we've, we've heard so many stories from Putin in the Netherlands, uh, Murat in France, Warsaw in Poland. Uh, those stories are now getting familiar as well. Uh, they're very similar to what happened also, for instance, in our time in Mesopotamia. But then you have also these all these personal stories. Um, it it all comes together, doesn't it? It does. And for me, I just I love everything pan. I mean, not just for most people. I think it's sexuality orientated. Um, but the uh, phrase pan, this comes from an old Greek uh, word. It's a prefix that means whole or comprehensive or everything so it's it's an including uh, phrase and that for me i think it's also always suggesting tolerance and uh, what i learned in university when we discussed uh, national socialism in germany my professor always said it's defined by inclusion and exclusion i mean being inside of the Volksgemeinschaft and being excluded from in uh, leading to horrendous uh, pain. So I think uh, seeing things as pan and seeing the whole picture of it and taking everyone with different stories in and finding a common ground in it, it's also some kind of revenge on this including and excluding aspect the Nazis try to do with society. Um, so when, when I work in the archive, I get emails from not just all from Europe, but also all from the world. I mean, we had colonies, French colonies, uh, former French colonies that are now uh, getting in touch with Neuen Gamme and want to visit. I get mails from the US from people who have had descendants in Europe that moved to the US after the war and people from China. I mean, there were people of color in concentration camps. And so we always need to include that we had like a whole world society inside these camps. So I really like to like this term pan-European. Yeah, so nice. But indeed, it's uh, it's true that um, the, when you meet somebody like we're all descendants from, when you meet somebody else and once you know, the story really starts going. It, it's like there is some instant bond between people, uh, I don't know, have you felt this too with, with some other people that you've met? Is this a thing? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've seen it with uh, the people from Britain. Uh, they, uh, I've met them a few years ago uh, and they just told their story of their village and then it was their grandfather, great-grandfather and it was instantly like, yeah, but mine was too. And, and it instantly creates this uh, connection uh, 
and, and we we meet regularly we uh, we talk to each other even if we're across other countries and that's that's also i i think i like it uh that you have this kind of connection with other people and i yeah. think you are open when you meet other descendants because you feel kind of in a safe room i always notice the change when i uh I work in the archive and people come to me as descendants and they see me as a historian. His, historian? Sorry, my English is bad. Uh, they see me only history related, scientific related, and they try to be historic and scientific and try to be uh, unemotionally. And then sometimes uh, when, when it fits into the conversation, I try to add in that I'm also a descendant and I see an immediate change them how they see me and how they speak to me and how they get they suddenly get open and uh, tell their feelings and i i really i i like to see the change on how people see you yeah absolutely and uh it's i think what's also very special about meeting other descendants is that there are th certain things you don't have to explain i don't have to explain to you why things that happened almost 80 years ago um, matter to me why i have a uh, uh, why on some days it makes me much more emotional to talk about my family history than uh, on on other days or i feel that um, uh, sometimes i think about uh, what I learned from uh, descendants, and it makes me, even though it is very different from my family history, it makes me very emotional because I have that connection that is much stronger than I have to uh, maybe other people I know. And I must say that with a lot of other people I know, I don't really talk about my family history. I don't actually, I don't like talking about my family history in I don't know, non-professional settings with people I know have a different family history because there's, in a sense, there's a gap between us, a gap of understanding that can't be bridged, at least not in a in a private setting, or it takes a long time to bridge it. Yeah, I always have this thing in mind where I'm talking to other people and it sort of plays in my mind like, yeah, I have this story but it's not just something you can easily bring up because it always feels like you're dropping a bomb in a conversation when yeah you sort of start with this uh this whole story uh, i hate like meeting new people and they ask oh what are you doing for a living and i say yeah i work in a concentration camp memorial and it's immediate silent and everybody's like oh are you okay how are you <laughs> feeling working there they get into this voice of uh, trying to comfort me and i'm like I'm really? totally fine. I love my job. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have a recommendation to you, Fancy. Just say oh, you yeah. work at a um, historical museum or a history museum. And then if they're really interested, they'll ask you. But most people, because they don't care about history, they'll just stop there. And they, oh, yeah, that's they, good. And you don't have to. So it's, it's, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's I use tactic. it as well. I, yeah, it's about it's a museum about the Second World War, not about uh, this big trauma that uh, yeah. happened in the village. Uh, that's usually when people are really interested because when I start talking, we're one hour uh, extra. So, yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes when you get to the part where, yeah, it's really about this really traumatic event, then you get sometimes this response of like, ooh, why would you want to sort of 
keep the memory of this really bad thing alive, then you have to explain, yeah, it's really important that we do this. Yeah. Why is it? Because it, sometimes for me, it feels like you're not only inheriting your family history, you're also a bit inheriting the trauma. Uh, but because we are all uh, famous a bit for keeping on telling our family history, uh, why is it? Uh, I always find this so peculiar. Yeah, I think it's the reason why it is important that we talk about it, and specifically we as like third and fourth generation, is that, yeah, we're sort of in the bridge between the short-term commemoration by yeah, first and second generation, and what will happen in the future when yeah, they are gone, and how will people look back on these events, let's say 100 years in the future or something like that. We're probably the bridge between a sort of short-term, long-term feels a bit that way, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, because we we were, I think we're the last generation that still feels the personal connection right now because we met people. We yep. were able to hear the stories directly from them. I think our children will not be able to because they wouldn't have known those people anymore. Um, and yeah, that for, for me, that's indeed a very big driver because I really want to keep the stories alive. Because if you see what's happening today, it's it's coming so close. War is still here. It it hasn't changed. Um, yeah. And it's coming again. The last few months, it's it's becoming close all of a sudden uh, to home. We have mm -hmm. people from Ukraine who are refugee in the village of Nesolkizyem. They visit the museum. They're in tears because they say this happened 75 years ago here. It's now happening in our. Uh, our hometown it's it's only 20 hours drive from here that's that's so weird yeah yes it's suddenly so close and i think well it's i think what, what you tell when these people are in tears you get to experience their emotion directly and i think it's it always it hits so much different if you're standing in front of a person and they tell their story no matter if it's uh second world war related or present day related they're telling a story and you are emotionally connected to them it's a difference when you read a history book that telling well over 100,000 people were imprisoned in Neuengamme and only half of them did not survive it's an incredibly high number but it's a number and it's not someone standing in front of you and saying like oh I survived Auschwitz oh I knew someone who survived Auschwitz my family survived Auschwitz that hits different. Yeah. Yeah. So it's less about the passing on historical data, the more about passing values. Is yeah. That it? It's I think it's values and I think people learn better when it's about emotions because I think when uh, um, people hear okay more, uh, all these men were taken from Minsukizigam to uh, to Neuengamme it's at first it's it's a group of people no no clear faces but uh, then i think um i hear that um tom's grandmother uh, was a small girl who uh, had from then on to grow up without her uh, her father uh, i think immediately most people can think about oh how was i at that age what did my father mean to me and what would it mean to me if I had been uh, in that situation? I, and I think that's a learning on a deeper level. 
to um, to and I think the more of these stories of how it did not end in 1945. May 8 is a wonderful day. It needs to be celebrated, but it did not end for so many people because mm -hmm. um, the hardship and the lives uh, you pended the lives um, changed uh, forever. The grief in the families, the missing person at the table. Um, I mean, those are the things that people can, I think, understand and understand. Okay, this is why this is still important, and and, and values passed on. Um, values passed on that were uh, given to the family. Uh, by that person who was persecuted, or maybe values that developed because of the experience of persecution, and uh, and uh, to see how these lines connect our presence um, to um, to the to the future is, I think, very important. I mean, there's there's not uh, it's all a continuum. We have the past, mm -hmm. we have the present, and the future. It's not uh, cut. Uh, yeah. Clearly. Yeah, there's no end know. to discrete stories, basically. No, right? it's you true. like to think about it like that, like, oh yeah, World War II ended that day. But yeah, it's all it's all just one connected whole. Yeah, we're still talking about it, and it has had for us, I think, uh, it has such big influence on our lives. Uh, eight years past, it's uh, it's incredible almost. Yeah, but yeah. I, I like to think as well that. Uh, even though this was such a cruel time and so many cruel things happened, good has happened from it as well afterwards. Uh, what, what I see today, the impact that we can have um, when people visit the museums. Uh, I've, I've been uh, guiding groups in Noing Gamma, but also in Menzel Kiesingham, telling these stories, telling uh, what happened, and, and you really see the mind shift that people go through. Um, the values that they experience, if we are able to reach only a few people, um, making them think about right and wrong and giving them nuance and develop their critical thinking, I think we're doing a good job. And then from even something so horrible, good can rise. Uh, I think that's my driver to tell these stories and to do this stuff uh, as a volunteer. Yeah. I just hope it works. Because every time when we are talking together, I think like, yeah, we're, we're achieving something. But then I go outside of this bubble and I think, okay, the Holocaust, especially now, got so much instrumentalized right now. I mean, don't want to bring up actual politics, but Putin is using an excuse, it's using the Holocaust as an excuse to denazify the Ukraine. I mean, that's... I feel for for me it basically feels like they are shitting on our remembrance, and people in the COVID pandemic uh, wearing uh, David stars to say that oh we have to be vaccinated we have or if we are not vaccinated we are going to be excluded and hunt like Jews in the Holocaust. They did not open any history book in their life, and they are using these traumas that we actually have in our family to just, I don't know what they want, attention or feeling as a victim. I don't know what they like to be a victim, but I just hope that how can we reach these people
people probably we can't because they have a closed mind but if we get to manage to just put a little crack in it with emotions and with stories maybe i hope you're right maybe we can reach them well i've um, actually i i've had these conversations with people uh especially during the the covid scene and i've heard the, the same stories that you talk about right now but uh, once you give them the the clear input on what really happened on your personal connection uh it opens their mind so i think it's oh, it's good. uh the power of the story is very strong uh i think it's the trying to reach everyone that's the challenge scale it um yeah. that's that's where it still work but hey we're doing a podcast so maybe that can help out as well <laughs> Yeah, maybe we can. I mean, I'm open for discussion with everyone who is willing to discuss. <laughs> I would like to come back to Tom's point. I think it's yeah. it's important that we remember. Yes, we can maybe reach a few people, and uh, and uh, that makes it um, makes a big difference. And I think, in a sense, um, we are yeah we are role models even for the people in in our environment in our commu community i mean simply by, by by being able to say um i have my young committee friends in all these different uh, uh, countries and uh, and uh, uh, i i feel it's uh, it, it, it's a thing it's it, it, it has real uh, it has a real power to be able to say i've i've friends in many different uh, places with different stories, different backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, and uh, through um, all of you, I also learned so much about uh, about your countries and uh, just in little little things without you um, telling me, you know, sitting down to tell me, oh, I wanted to tell you about Belgium and how it functions, um, but just by by hearing little things. And uh, simply by saying, for example, to uh, to, to my son, or oh, I have oh, I have a meeting uh, this morning um, um, with my young committee friends, and uh, and uh, and uh, both Tom's are sitting in Belgium, and uh, Francie is sitting in a different part of Hamburg. It's already it's showing you can have friends any, anywhere. You you can build a connection. Uh, to people, or when we did our uh, podcast with Alexander in uh, in the spring, I mean, uh, he lives in Croatia. So um, I think uh, we do things in a small level. We're not going we're not going change going to change everything right away, but uh, we're changing Every little dropouts. Yeah, in in yeah. our close surroundings. Yeah, sometimes it's enough to just be. The one person in the group when yeah some kind of one when some of these topics come up maybe it's enough to just be the one person in the group say like hey I actually know a bit of this stuff let me tell you a few things exactly even that's a nice conversation starter yeah. <laughs> yeah well sometimes I mean that's also why it's so good that we all talk to each other about it because it makes us I think more equipped to to say a few things even in a setting like a party where people don't want to dive into it, but we are so much better at saying it concisely because we are talking about it together. And yeah. uh, then we can rest <laughs> our case. And if people want to talk more, they can come up to us. But if we have said our three sentences, I think that's more than enough. 
Can you tell it in three sentences? I'm usually gone for half an hour when I start talking. But... <laughs> well, I, I always say, I mean, there are people around the world who actually have a personal connection, a family connection to this time. And simply for that reason, um, you, um, uh, you, you, you need to know about this time because it has, it continues to have an effect. And I think that's, uh, I mean, I know I have not convinced everybody I've said this to, but uh, at least it's it's my answer to people who say, well, we need to stop talking about this. The poor children, they are not responsible. They don't need to learn about it at school. Uh. Oh, yeah, responsible? No, not for the history, but for the learning of it. Yeah. yeah. They're responsible for the future, and we and, need to give them all the luggage they need to do good in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's nice. Okay, but then I uh, I also like the fact that you talked about Svenja that uh, you meet new people and this is the conversation starter, um, but it doesn't end there because indeed I've uh, learned so much about Germany and Hamburg and uh, I've had uh, I think a few weeks ago somebody came up to me and was like why do you always go to Hamburg you're there like six times a year what what the hell are you doing there you know it was Germany like it was bad in the Second World War. I, I love it when people talk to me like that. It's like, yeah, one of my best friends are in Hamburg, actually. It might be me moving there uh, when I retire. It could be I'm, I'm oh, yeah. growing so in love with the city. Uh, it's It feels like a second home, but it does. And uh, yeah, it's it goes further than only the story. It's a catalyst for good connections. So yeah, that's what I like about this as well. All right. Wow. Uh, we're already an hour in, uh, so we're... Uh, doing a good job filling our podcast with a lot of good stuff. Uh, but maybe this was a, a very good second episode in what I hope is going to be uh, something very regular. Um, I think we're uh, definitely going to continue and come up with something, a uh, nice, cool episode next. Um, so maybe from our side, uh, it's very interesting. If you are hearing this and you like what we're talking about and you want to join us, uh, we're always looking for new interesting guests uh, on our podcast to continue. So just reach out and uh, bring your story to the table. Uh, also, if you want to grab more info on what happened here, you can always look at the show notes. Uh, the show notes are published on our website. It's knowinggamba.international and there you can jump to the Young Committee. Uh, you can find everything you like or on the Noingama Generations uh, channels. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts on SoundCloud. Uh, wow, we're present in a lot of different things. Uh, that's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, that leads me to thank my uh, wonderful panel members for today. Uh, thank you for being here, of course, Franci uh, and Svenja and also Tom Lemons for being here. It was wonderful chatting up uh, with you about this wonderful topic that is connected to our lives. And uh, yeah, we uh, I actually hope to see you guys pretty well in real life soon. Um, and I really look forward to our next podcast together about nine gamma generations. Well, thank you, Tom, for facilitating our conversation and making sure that despite all the things we had in mind, we wanted to talk about, we stayed on course. And uh, and thank you for hosting us also. I mean, you do all the recording, etc. And uh, thank you. Well, happy to do so. OK, see you soon, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.